My name is Kathy Sherman, and I have been a school counselor for 15 years. Uh, previous to school counseling, I was a middle school teacher in Redlands, California. Two guys in the back row. You got you to wait. Who I taught with when we were like 22, um, so it's fun to see them now. Um, Michelle Van Ord, over here, will introduce herself later. Um, you're all here for the focus of our session, which has to do with working with middle schoolers and understanding the mess that they are <laughs> developmentally socially, emotionally, um, physically, and how all of that goes into the challenge of teaching them um, for the three or four years of middle school, depending on where your school starts that process. So as we start to discuss middle schoolers, I have a question for you. So if you think about, um, if you were to get pulled over speeding on your way home today, what are some of the reasons you would give the police officer for speeding? Just shout out. I wasn't paying attention. Go to the bathroom. I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> the speed limit wasn't posted. I didn't see the sign. I'm late. Going with traffic. I was just going with traffic. My car doesn't what? My car doesn't go that fast. Maybe. Um, any others you can think of? Reasons we give police officers. Everyone else is doing it right. So I was at a conference this summer, and they used this as. Um, an example for why middle schoolers misbehave. Okay. And I liked it because it kind of ties in this idea where we as adults have rules we're supposed to follow, right? And we choose to misbehave, to disobey. Um, but we're not setting out to ruin the police officer's day, right? If we look at this list, I wasn't paying attention. Everyone else was doing it. I'm having a bad day. Uh, you only noticed me, everyone else is speeding. Um, I didn't know I was. Nobody told me not to. It's not my fault. We can connect all those to maybe reasons that middle schoolers um, might misbe misbehave in class. But then Michelle and I were also talking that you could maybe interchange the word misbehave to struggle, and it kind of changes the context. So misbehavior um, implies that there was a choice, maybe, where when kids struggle, it's not always in their control. So we kind of talked about it in those two different ways. And I think it's a good segue into thinking about middle schoolers and brain development. So if we think about the kids in our classroom and all the things going on with them, and we look at the inside of it, this is a teenage brain, but very similar to middle school students. If we think about ourselves being adults with most of us have fully developed brains. Those of you in your early 20s, <laughs> you're still working on it. Um, <laughs> but when we look at the prefrontal cortex, and we look at our middle school students, and then we think about how we view the world and how we operate. So in that prefrontal cortex, we know that adults have a fully developed brain in that area after the age of 25, and that students are um, immature and prone to high-risk behavior in that area. And Michelle's going to go more in-depth with a lot of these. And then if we look at the amygdala or the amygdala, depending on your science teachers, um, in adults we rely less on this and we rely more on the prefrontal cortex. But in middle schoolers, that's where that impulsive piece comes in because that's still developing. There's a big contrast between teachers and our students and how our brains are working. Uh, one other area I wanted to just uh, focus on or point out is the hippocampus. And this is where our memory and our learning is occurring. And we know with middle schoolers um, that there's a tremendous 
learning curve occurring during these ages. And adults, it's fully functioning, but then some of us are starting to lose that <laughs> area um, in those neurons with age. So Michelle's going to go more in depth with these parts. Thanks for having us today. I'm just going to give you a brief um, introduction of who I am. I'm Michelle Benord. I am not a teacher. I worked in a school's, I think Kathy and I tag teamed a, a school for a long time, and I worked in um, schools for 10 years. But one of my biggest passions is coming alongside adults and helping them understand some of the developmental issues that kids face um, and how that impacts learning. Because I feel like just like with any other piece of information, sometimes it changes the way that we look at the problem. So really kind of understanding brain development and what's happening gives us a different way to look at the problematic behavior that could be happening in our classroom. I know Kathy was just kind of talking about the parts of the brain and what they do, and that's going to be kind of woven into our whole presentation today. But I want you to keep in mind this metaphor that I read a long time ago. It really stuck with me, and it made me think of the presentation today. It's, it's kind of the idea that the, the brain is similar to your entertainment system at home. You have all these different parts. You have the TV, you have your Blu-ray or DVD player yet, you have your surround sound system. You have all these different pieces. There's wires going everywhere, yet nothing's connected. And for kids, that prefrontal cortex, the remote control, the thing that manages it all, hasn't even arrived yet. So we're going to talk a little bit about how does that change what they're taking in, the input that they have, and how do we read them and understand where they're at so that we can best support each other in our day. So, not just brain development's happening, but a ton of growth in their bodies. They're, they're kind of big and too big for their bodies. Sometimes they don't realize all the growth that's happening. They fall out of chairs. <laughs> right? They fall out of chairs. They bump into things. They're just kind of awkward all over the place. Um, a lot of times we blame it on puberty. We kind of say, oh, then and there's sex hormones or... I think Kathy and I both have teenagers right now, and my daughter will often be like, I don't need a coat, Mom, and in my head I'm silently saying, that's all right, your hormones will keep you warm today. Like, <laughs> but, but truthfully, it really isn't some of the puberty stuff that's causing the problems. It's actually much more the brain development, so hopefully we can kind of untangle some of that today. And we're going to keep talking about these, but they become way more interested in their peers. Learning is much more secondary. Um, because of all of this, there's a ton of insecurity, so they could be laughing about something they just did or a joke they told one moment, and within half a second, they're crying because of embarrassment, right? They don't know how to process it all. Um, and then sleep changes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on this a little bit right now, but our kids' sleep is super important. I know it's been in the news here in Michigan a lot recently, and I know even, I think in California, some of the schools are are looking at adjusting their daytime schedule. I read a study this week that was super helpful to me, and it talked about when your body releases melanin. So melanin is that natural body occurring hormone. The synthetic is melatonin. That's what we buy at the store if we're not sleeping well. And they were saying they have discovered that for us as adults, we have our melanin released in our body around 10 p.m. I was like, oh, that makes sense sit down, close up the night, watch a little news or whatever, sitcom is on, by 10, 30, 11, I'm out. For kids, for teens especially, that melanin is not released till 2 a.m. 
And so I thought about it for a little bit, and I was like, yeah, that still kind of makes sense. I think of college, I think of it's midnight, let's go for coffee. <laughs> it's midnight, let's go play some cards. You know, that wind down is not happening for them at the same time. And again, how does sleep affect learning? Quite a bit. Memory, it affects their ability to focus. So I'm getting way too deep into this, but I just had to share that because that was really interesting to me. And I thought, well, then what do we do? Because we're asking our kids to try and go to sleep or fall asleep around 9 or 10 or 11 at night so they can be up by 6. They've only had like four hours of good rest. So just keeping some of these key pieces in mind. There's so many things that happen that are observable, right? But there's also things that are happening behind the scenes that we don't totally understand. And I think... I always think of um, this as kind of an upgrade, like, you know how when you get a new phone and you kind of start to treat it like your own fo old phone or your old app and you're kind of like, wait, where did that go or how do I, this isn't so easy anymore. Same thing is happening for our kids. They're experiencing a huge upgrade. I don't really understand how I fit into this new body or I don't really understand where I fit with my friends. Or I don't really understand, am I trying to be a show off or am I trying to be a studious student. So trying to work with the upgrade. How do we help them upgrade into a new system while supporting them versus fighting them or asking them to do things that their system can't do? Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So sometimes we actually push kids in a way that their system isn't really ready for, right? We kind of challenge them to think about the future when they don't really have that manager in their brain there yet. So the prefrontal cortex, this part, the frontal lobe, um, scientists are now saying that it doesn't come in until 23 to 25 for women and 25 to 28 for men. So this part is, is key. This is your remote. This is what takes everything and organizes it in a very systematic way. It takes your feelings, breaks them down into manageable levels, takes your ability to look into the future and say, okay, what are the logical consequences that could happen because of my choice? And none of that's there yet. But a lot of times we'll say things to kids too, like, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> they can't. They can't. They don't know. They don't know. Um, or sometimes we'll, we'll say, like, I just need you to go to bed and sleep right now. You've got a big day tomorrow. You need to be able to focus. Some of these things they want to do, and I think if we can kind of recognize some of their intention and their goals that they have with us, but also bringing them into what their body's doing and why they're struggling, it won't feel like such a personal battle for them or for us. I also think it just communicates a ton of respect and grace, right? It's not grace like, it's no big deal to me, it doesn't matter. But it's really including them in the process. I know that this is a struggle spot for you, and we're just going to need to work together to figure out the best ways because it looks like your system isn't fully engaged today. right? So it's kind of how do I engage in these conversations instead of reacting and saying quick things. <laughs> a lot of times, because of all of this growth and insecurity, their ask for help isn't going to look the same as ours as an adult would. It's really hard for them to articulate what's going on. They don't fully have the expressive language yet, nor the knowledge to say what's really happening. They can feel the feelings, 
but to bring it from here to here is really hard. So another big thing that happens is this idea of like myelination and pruning. I'm not a science teacher, so I won't go into it too much, but maybe you guys remember some of this from Inside Out. It's kind of that process where we pare down a lot of information that they had and keep the things that are being used the most. So this is really significant for our adolescents and our teens. Um, a lot of times when I work with families and parents, there's this idea that kids have forgotten what you've taught them, or you need to lean in even harder during those teen years. As developmental counselors, we would say a lot of what you teach your kids is grounded in by 12. And then some of the pruning comes out if we're not talking about it anymore. Now, don't obsessively talk about it. But I'm saying the good stuff is already there. It's already cemented in. It's not that they don't know. There's other stuff going on. There's peer relations which have become more important. There's risk-taking behaviors. That stuff is still there. And when you teach kids things that they already know, what happens? And they screw around. Yeah. Or like that previous slide, check out, get angry, right? So myelination is kind of some of the pruning. It's also um, how kids, the, the myelination is the myelin sheath goes around the, the neuron axions and then it makes the connections go much faster. They can think faster, they can process faster, they think differently, they can start, start to think abstractly. Right? And so we want to kind of help them practice that without the expectation that they're there yet. Right? So how do we start to engage them in deeper level conversations? When we have little kids, we say that they're like sponges and they just soak it all up. And everything that they say they want to know, or everything we say they want to know, as we move into these adolescent years, kids much more want to contemplate, well, why is that true? Or like the blinders come off a little bit and they see us more as humans instead of like the all-knowing mom and dad or teacher, right? Okay. So we're going to kind of keep talking about ways to support this upgrade and to support some of the understanding that's happening as they go through adolescence and this brain upgrade. One of the ways that we can really support is lean in and have tough conversations with them. They desire it. You guys know Greta, right? Her passion, her desire to tell people what they're doing and how they're hurting our climate is so evident, you know? And, and trying to help lean into some of our kids to understand what is your passion? What do you think about some of these things? Um, and to contrast that with the learning style of lecturing like this, this is very difficult for them to be able to come and sit for hours. But it's a model that many of us kind of use or grew up with, right? Is a lot of one-way teaching. So how can we kind of bring in things that are much more important to them? How can we kind of use some of that critical thinking skills and questioning <laughs> to help them use that new processing speed, help them think about things in a different way, help them analyze what they believe. But then this is the hard part, and have intelligent discussions with their peers <laughs> or us about that. And remember, that needs to be taught. Like sometimes when I work with parents and families, when their kids come out with big feelings or that's not right, um, there's, a, there's a slow eye roll 
from a parent. And I want to say, just be careful. They don't have the language or the means yet to know how to do that. We can come alongside them and teach them, and I think you guys are, teaching them how to have an intelligent conversation with a different belief. Now, a lot of parents get really nervous when kids come out challenging beliefs and having new and different ideas. And I would say, remember, that stuff is cemented in. It's still there. But the age and way of our teenagers is they need to be able to say openly, why? Why? Why is that important? Why? Why do you believe that? Why? Why don't you think this way? And it doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to return to that truth or that understanding. But because of the upgrade, they don't have the language or the ability yet to fully know why they're asking all these questions or where they're going to land. So we need to be comfortable with that. Be comfortable with their questioning and teach them how to do it well. And I know that can be a little scary sometimes. Keep going? Okay. <laughs> um, I'm used to doing this one-on-one -on -one or maybe one-on-four at the most in my office. It's been a long time since I've had a, a classroom or a group in front of me. Speaking is not my favorite thing, but it, like I said, I do love just engaging in discussion and how are we doing this and how can I help you and how can you help me where we are not help supporting the upgrade. So one of the other things that really happens quite a bit um, is in this age, they're very, very into exciting things. Not surprising, right? Who's seen... Fortnite and all of the different skins that come out all the time and what is he called the, the llama and the bonus there's all kinds of things they add in all the time right clearly I don't play but <laughs> I'm not wired towards the exciting like that anymore I'm not wired towards the immediate the quick fun thing and remember that's not because it, it's because they're not able to sustain their attention for long periods of time yet. That delayed gratification doesn't happen as well. So what does that look like in our classroom? Because grades are very much kind of a delayed gratification thing. And I know parents and teachers have said to me, I don't want to do sticker charts. Or I don't want to be throwing fireballs every time they get the right answer. But trying to think about, like, what are ways that we can support each other as we go through this? Because I don't really understand the need for reinforcing exciting things all the time for you, but I'm also in, not in your place, not in your boat, right? The other thing is they're also really, really, really hardwired towards risky things. So there was a study that was done that put adults in a car and asked them to drive at a higher rate of speed, and then there was a group of kids that they put in the car and they asked them to drive at a higher rate of speed and then they put kids in the car and they asked them to drive with their friends at a higher rate of speed. That group, right, was the one that was willing to drive the highest speeds for the longest time. Some of that is peer influence. Some of that is just that excitement, that need for speed, right? So they're constant leaning in towards exciting or new. How can we build in some novelty in our classrooms? What does that look like in a practical way? Does that look like going outside for one day? Does that look like, maybe it does look like tossing out fireballs one day. But I do think there's a balance, right? We don't have to feel like we're, I know, a monkey putting on a show or dog and pony thing. We don't have to do that. But we can meet them where they're at and even just talk about even our own experience. What do I do when I feel unmotivated? 
What novelty did I do? Usually it's Starbucks. I drank it all already, so that's not here. You know, what do we do for our own sense of novelty? Find new pen, uh, pens and markers and doodles. Like, how can we help engage them in growing that process in a productive way instead of feeling like it needs to be shut down? You have something in here about appraisal systems, too. Oh, yeah. <coughs> um, I was just reading a little bit about appraisal systems with um, developing middle schoolers and how the brain is actually wired to favor yes over no. So if a, if a middle schooler is given the opportunity to do something, they favor yes over no, um, because it also it's connecting back to um, this feeling of restlessness or boredom with the familiar. So they will choose a yes option over a no option, even if the yes option is risky. Does that make sense? Okay, because the, the boring or the routine is something that their brain is not craving. The brain is craving the new, the exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, and there has to be a little bit of that riskiness because if if we really understood at 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 what it was going to be like to move away from our parents who did our laundry, who made us dinner, who gave us money for gas in our car, who, right? Like, we wouldn't want to leave the nest. We'd never want to leave the nest if we could really understand what it was going to be to live out in the real world and some of the struggles we'd have to pay, face, you know. I was one that left the nest and went a couple states away, and my family had a really hard time understanding it. Well, why? Why would you want to leave? We're all right here. This is great. West Michigan's great. Stay here. And I don't even think I had the words to fully explain, but some of it was that drive for excitement. Some of it was a lot of other things as well, but exciting, new, city life, you know, all the fun things. And it's necessary, right? If we can see it as necessary, we don't get into the eye-rolly place. When we see it as necessary as part of their development in order to leave home, in order to try new things, in order to go to college, in order to go into the trades, in order to whatever they want to do, buy a car, right? They need something that says, take the risk. Take the risk. We want to be methodical. If you save $25 out of your paycheck every Right? We're operating with our prefrontal cortex. We have the remote control that kind of says, how can we do this in a systematic way? They don't. They are at the store at Target. They see a game they want. They blow their wad. We're like, wait, maybe don't you want to save some, put some aside? That's not how their brain works. So along with that and along with what Kathy was saying too, there's just such a strong drive for their peer relationships. Fitting in truly is kind of like life or death in a sense for them because that's their tribe. That's who they're going to be with. They're not going to be at home with us. They're going to be with peers their own age, right? Who do we kind of associate with our peer group? Who did we have lunch with last night? A lot of us had lunch with our peer group. Um, in our circles, that's where they find their connection and their meaning. And in middle school and in high school, that's still pretty shaky, right? So it's really, really normal for them to be doing that. And a lot of times we'll use the analogy, well, if your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? <coughs> Based on what we just told you, they would say, yes, we would. <laughs> yes, we would. It's way fun. Right? And we need to stop taking it personal. We need to stop taking it personal and just understand it's a function of their, their limited brains. So I keep doing this, and I probably should explain what this is. I have a middle schooler and my husband 
um, was a middle school teacher for a long time. And sometimes, so my daughter was super compliant. She was the easiest kid. When she was a little girl, I used to tell my husband, don't get used to this. This is not a real kid. She's just an easy kid. And as she started moving closer and closer to middle school, she would do crazy things. Like, I would look at her like, what made you think to do that? And my husband knew. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I have years of this. And so, like, I would start to react because I was like, what's wrong with her? There must be something wrong with her. Like, this is not a, a Maya decision. What's going... And he started to do this to me. And I was like, what is this? He's like, not a fully formed brain. I'm like, oh, not... So now, even days where there's big reactions in our house, sometimes we have to look at each other in a loving way and kind of <laughs> signal each other. It's not insulting. It's just a reminder. Because to us, it looks confusing, right? Why would they do that? Why would they pick? That was the dumbest thing that their friends could ever do. Why in the world would you go along? Right? They will forsake morality for membership sometimes. So it's not that they don't know the right answer. It's not that they don't know what we would do as parents. Membership is so important. They need their tribe. They need their people. And, and some of that gets solidified, right? In your 20s, in your 30s, that calms down. And other things are able to kind of come forward in your brain development, and, and it shifts. They also see us as fallible. They see our mistakes a little bit more. They see that we don't know everything. And so they would much rather lean in with people that can help move them into a higher level or position of popularity or status or inclusion than, than their parents. We're not going to help out with that, right? So, do you want to add more to this? So, this is a really fun study. I don't know why. As I kind of got into my 40s, I started reading kind of weird to me. I don't know, maybe it's a different part of my brain developing or moving forward or other parts dying. I don't know. So Deborah Yelurgen, Yerglin, Todd, so sorry, I'm not saying her name right, did this really interesting study. She took adults and put them in MRI machines and then she also took teenagers and put them in MRI machines and showed them pictures like this. And she said, now tell me what emotion this is. What do you guys think? What emotion is this? Murmuring, shock, fear, fear, right? 100% of the adults said fear. Kids said anger. So, so it kind of right away brought up this idea to me. Why are you always mad at me? Oh, wait. They're not reading shock or surprise on my face. When I say to my daughter, like, why did you do that? What, what happened? I'm shocked and surprised. Why are you always yelling at me? Oh, because they're misreading the cues. So then I started to think even bigger. Like, you know, a lot of the work that we do, especially in middle school, is around friendships and relationships and peer relations. And what often happens in those peer relations in middle school? So-and-so is mad at me. Well, really, what do they say? It's just the way she was looking at me. 
so they don't have this prefrontal cortex, the part that takes in information and says like, hmm, is it fear? Is it shock? Is it surprise? Is it anger? Is it, they also said that teens responded much faster. It was almost like an impulsive response. So I like this saying, they say that teens and kids will think with their gut. Their brain's not fully formed, right? So they think with their gut. It's like this amygdala response that happens. It's this fight or flight kind of thing, this trigger thing that kind of just makes them go like, why are you mad at me? They haven't even really thought it through, like mom hasn't said anything to me. Um, there's no consequence being handed out, but they just react really fast, and a lot of times it's with the wrong emotion. So I had a little bit of this fear experience, thinking with my, my gut instead of my head. As I was coming down here, and I was supposed to meet Kathy, and um, all of a sudden the fire alarm's going off in the elevator, and I'm like, oh, I need to get downstairs, we need to walk over. And so I'm like pressing the button, right? Pressing the button, pressing the button. I can hear the alarm going off in the elevator. There's no elevator, there's a fire alarm going off. So I called onto the front desk, hi, I can't get down. They're like, yes, we know. Um, it's a false alarm. Just wait a few minutes. Everything will reset. You'll be able to go downstairs. But that panicky gut feeling is what kids experience and think all the time. Like, I could stop and slow down. Okay, I need to call the front desk. I need to see what's up. Okay, I could take the stairs if I need to. Okay, I need to text Kathy. They would sit there and press the button. <laughs> right? Because they're operating from that fear response instead of a, let's think about it. What else could I be doing? Um, if, if I don't get down there, then what could Kathy do? How could we do this together? It's just that sheer fear response. So it's a really interesting study. You can look it up on, I think it's on the PBS website if you want to read a little bit more about it. But um, how are we doing on time? Yeah, I actually had something to add to this. I was thinking about this when we were doing this presentation with students that I see in my office. So I'll have a student come and say, like, that teacher hates me. Or... Um, she always picks on me or I'm always in trouble and I think a strategy to use in the classroom is when a student has has done something that they're in trouble for and you need to talk to them to be able to name the emotion that you're feeling so that you can explain it to them I am frustrated because I've told you six times to join your group or um, I'm concerned because you have time to do your math homework and you're not doing it you know instead of that just that redirection you know do your math uh, it's time to work in your group. You're not working in your group. Just to be able to give the emotion that you're feeling, because it also then models to them and shows them what their actions are causing in you as a teacher. Does that make sense? Just like an easy way to kind of help them mm -hmm. with the misreading of everything. And I think you could pre-correct too, right? So like, if you can see the deer in the headlights look on their face and you see them going into that fight or flight thing, I'm not mad. I'm just really confused because I thought that we were going to work together on your project today. Or I thought you were going to come to me for help. So I'm not, I'm not mad. I'm just a little confused. Can you help me understand what happened? Right? But knowing, too, that, like, they're still pressing the button, probably. It's probably not going to be ordered and, and always clear. Um, 
So I, I think sometimes it can be hard and confusing as we're trying to sort through all of this. And, and I can't even imagine what it's like to have stuff that you want to get through each day. And if you have emotions that are happening or something that just happens is really distraughtful or distressing in the hallway or, or you don't even know what's happening, but you can tell something's happening for some of your kids. I know it's really hard to kind of figure out how do I leave room for emotions and learning? How do I support them where they're at? Because sometimes it's just, it feels easier to just try and push through. Let's just try and push through and get the, the work out there. We need to get through this today. We need to make sure everything's ready for the test on Friday. Um, but I also want you to see that emotions can be really, really valuable if we can help our kids use the language so they can advocate for themselves or even express what they're going through. And we can support each other in that process. Um, we're there to teach kind of the whole child, and we can't say that that's not occurring. And so when we model emotion, too, through our teaching, it kind of gives permission and lends itself to bring that into the classroom. And let's talk about that. You're not their counselor. We're not asking you to be their counselor, but you get to see the whole child then. You know, if you kind of talk about things that are going on in your life that could affect your focus that day, it gives it a safe place to say, that's okay, and I respect that, and I appreciate that, and we're a team, and we can help with some of that. Um, the only thing I would say is really try to stay away from shame and sometimes even sarcasm, because sometimes, again, if they're not reading that face that we saw before correctly, they might not be reading your sarcasm correctly. Even though it's really, really funny for you and probably some of the other teachers that you'd share it with, it'd be great, but like for them, not everything's there. So they could be thinking, yes, this teacher hates me. Some kids are great at sarcasm, throwing it out there when it's one way, but we can't be clear on how it's being received either. So just be careful with some of that. Um, another great way to help them connect emotionally is, is using a lot of expressive arts or using different things in your classroom that could engage that. Um, don't expect them to be good at it, though. <laughs> right? Don't expect them, when we're asking to do some different things, to be there yet as an adult. Um, but I think, it, again, it just communicates a ton of respect and appreciation for kind of where they're at and trying to bring a new way of learning or enhance our learning with them through understanding some of the upgrade that's going on. Um, so when I got my master's degree to be a school counselor, it was in the year 2000. And we didn't talk about things like kids who'd experienced trauma. Um, and I think a sign of the times changing is how many different kinds of needs we have in our classrooms now. Um, a few years ago I went back to school to get a master's in counseling psychology because I felt like doing my job effectively as a school counselor, I needed to know way more in-depth information than what I had been trained on um, all those years ago. And it probably had something to do with turning 40 and like midlife crisis as well. So grad school over plastic surgery, I guess, something like that. Um, but if we look at middle school students impacted by trauma, and we think about all these pieces of the brain that we've talked about already, um, childhood trauma comes in many forms. And I think, did anyone go to the trauma section this morning? Okay, so you guys can come up and teach this part. Um, childhood trauma is any event that a child finds overwhelmingly distressing or emotionally painful, often resulting in lasting mental and physical effects. 
So I think we used to think trauma was some huge horrific earthquake or violence or um, you know something along those lines. And now it can be um, witnessing violence. It could be separation from parents. It could be bullying. It can be vicarious trauma. So just you know experience or seeing something happen. Um, it could be I had a student who saw their dog get hit by a car. You know it's like it's so many different things than what we would normally think of with trauma. And so as we think about a middle school student in our classroom who experienced trauma at some point in their life, um, and we look at these parts of the brain again, so we have this fear center, and a child who has experienced trauma will have difficulty feeling safe, difficulty calming down, and likely difficulty sleeping. So if you put that into this middle schooler who's already <laughs> has so much going on, um, this is going to be impacting a lot of things that you see in your classroom. Um, if we think about uh, how it affects perception of reality. So we have the prefrontal cortex with that thinking center. This would be difficulty concentrating, difficulty learning. It could look a lot like ADHD in your classroom, but it's coming from a trauma base instead. And then we have this ACC center um, with the difficulty of managing emotions. So it's kind of the perfect storm with a middle schooler who's experienced trauma and also is going through all the changes in middle school. So I think it's important to think about strategies in the classroom and if you have a, a kiddo who's experienced trauma, just to look for ways, um, it's almost like a combination of strategies you would use for ADHD kids and strategies you would use for students on the autism spectrum somewhere. So it's kind of that, like, um, the importance of providing security and secure relationships and also notifying them of any changes in schedules or making sure you keep routines the same as much as you can in a middle school. Um, it's also helping them with big emotional reactions, or it could be a student that has a small reaction to something that should have been a big reaction. So just kind of helping them process uh, those emotions in the classroom. Um, it's also that like teaching skills and modeling, um, having them be a part of a group or a team, and just more uh, teacher input with actually teaching them how to do those skills. Does that make sense? Very quick trauma slide. Anything you want to um, Sometimes we see hypervigilance, which always looks like anxiety, but it's a different way of treating it because, again, their core is shaken. They don't feel safe anymore. And so we can't just say, like, you don't need to worry about this. It'll be okay. It doesn't change that gut feeling for them. They can't use that rationale. There's... Let's do I this one. Um, Did you go to today? Yeah, I went to... There's a book I didn't list in the resources, but if you're not familiar with it, there's a book called The Deepest Well. Um, there's an author, her name is Nadine Burke Harris, but if you just look up The Deepest Well, she has a book on childhood trauma, and she has a TED Talk too that's pretty interesting. So if you have students who have experienced trauma, I would suggest either spending time with the book or listening to the TED Talk. Um, I think it's also just important to know that when students experience trauma, there are so many parts of their body that are affected, right? Their brain's affected, their fight or flight response is affected. Um, there could be friendship problems because of all of these different pieces that uh, have been impacted by trauma. So just a lot of guidance from teachers, and especially if you can kind of be their person, if you can really connect with a student who has experienced trauma. Yeah. Any questions on that? We should have time for questions at the end. So um, we couldn't do a middle school presentation without talking about screens, and this could be its own presentation. Um, 
because it's such a topic, and I, I really appreciate what David Smith said this morning when he was talking about this as well. Um, but thinking about middle school students and screens and connecting this back to the neuroplasticity that Michelle was talking about in the pruning, it's pretty scary to think about, right? So we have kids now where neuro, neural pruning is occurring um, because kids aren't having as much face-to-face -face communication. So they're not using those skills, so they're being pruned out. Um, if we think about research studies, we've heard where kids are struggling with conversation skills now, even more than they did in the past, where kids feel isolated when they're in face-to-face -face situations because they're used to communicating over on screens only. Um, you see peers withdrawing to their phones. I like this picture because you see this all the time whenever kids are together and they're allowed to have their phones. So they're surrounded by peers, but they're looking at their phones. And that also is leading to this rise in anxiety and depression and kids saying that they're lonely, where they might have a very like active cyber world that they're interacting with, whether that's video games or whether that's Snapchat, just communicating that way. Um, TikTok right now, I'm about ready to throw my own kids' phones away because of TikTok. But I hear, you know, students who go home and they just scroll through, are you all familiar with TikTok? They just scroll through all these, you know, TikToks instead of actually interacting with real people. So um, this all ties into EQ, which is a little bit alarming to me. So their emotional intelligence is actually being stunted because of all the time they spend on screens. So if we think about emotional intelligence, that's those skills where we develop the ability to understand, we develop empathy, managing our emotions, all of those skills that help us uh, communicate effectively as adults and have healthy relationships. It's also self-awareness, self-management, all those skills. Um, and when people have low emotional intelligence, there's that weak connection between the emotional part of the brain, so that amygdala or amygdala again, and the cerebral cortex. So we're kind of raising this generation of middle schoolers who are not being able to develop that emotional intelligence part of um, themselves that's so important. So I think the struggle is where in schools now, how many of your schools have middle schoolers who have a device in school, like a computer or an iPad in school? So I know that I see this at break when I walk around. The kiddos that I see that struggle with ADHD at break or at lunchtime are locked in to their computers and they're playing any video game that they can possibly find through all the um, walls that are put up um, because that's what they're craving. So I think as schools, it's really important to put those rules in place right away so that they have time for that social interaction at breaks or during lunch. But then it's also um, actually intentionally teaching like mindfulness and helping our kids have time where they're using their imagination, where they're putting um, yeah, where, where the mindfulness is replacing the mindlessness of screens. And sometimes this can come in the form of five minutes at the beginning of your class of just quiet. Um, there's a teacher at my school who does five minutes after the lunchtime where kids, um, she'll play music, and kids can either just draw, or they can do doodling, or they can um, read a book, but it's just quiet. And so it's kind of that just allowing their brains to chill because they just go from one thing to the other. Um, this is also in the form of assignments that uh, that need that creative piece, even if you're not like the language arts pe uh, teacher. So little Timothy Christian shout out, my seventh grader had to do a social studies assignment where he wrote a letter like he was a soldier. And it was just a different way for him to use his imagination, um, where he just had to be creative and really think. 
even though that wasn't a language arts assignment, that's kind of co combating this kind of stuff that's happening when they're on their screens all the time. So just look for ways to just ha have them have the opportunity to just be still and think. Um, I liked that the speaker this morning talked about having kids go and think about a Bible passage by themselves and reflect on it because they don't have time to do that during the day. Do you want to add what you were talking about with grown-ups too? With how we check out? Or whatever you want. That must have been checked out. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, along with that too, I think um, one of the misses we have, and I do as a parent too, is not fully explaining why we're saying no to screens, or I know that you want to play. I can validate their feelings. I know that you want to play and want unlimited screens. I'm sure a lot of your friends might have that as well. But explaining to them why and where their brain is at, you know, and kind of helping them understand. So your brain does like that dopamine release, or that thing that happens in your brain when you play games. But it's not good for your brain to do that all the time. And you can talk about a diet of sugar and candy and sweets. Um, those are great things. They taste good every once in a while. Trying to help them understand balance. Will they? <laughs> no remote control. No this, right? But I think we give them the language instead of just saying no or time to shut it down or somewhere along the line, have a two-minute intentional conversation about what is going on with their development, with their brain development. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but it is going to be hard for you to fall asleep tonight. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to let you stay up till 2, but it just means if you can tell me ways that you can get comfy in your room, I want to support that. Or do you, do you like music? Or do you like it quiet? And kind of engage them in that process. I think they like that awareness and inclusion instead of being told or in a one-way street. Um, and along with... EQ too, or the emotional intelligence. I think you said this, but I just want to highlight it again. Like that's practiced out in face-to-face -face interactions, right? So even though we have the capability to get a lot of feedback on our grades and how we're doing in classes online and through that technology, even just talking to people and talking to your students about their learning style, what are you learning about how you're learning this year, what works for you, you know, when I work with kids that are struggling academically, I'll ask that question, and some of them are like, what? <laughs> I have choices into that? I'm like, sure, how do you do your homework? By the table? That's not what I mean, you know, but like engaging them in that process of learning and knowing themselves through face-to-face -face communication serves a couple of purposes. Information, it works on that EQ still, skill, it fosters, I care about you, it's so many good things, right? So even though we have the ease of technology sometimes, also lean back into a lot of that face-to-face -face interaction with your students. I know time restrictions are hard, but it's so super valuable, especially as we're seeing them move to more and more technology preferences in their own time. I think just, oh. I'm just curious, is there, are there any studies out there <coughs> as far as how much time, say, if you have a 40 minute class, you know? have the kids on the screen 20 minutes or is there anything that connects with what you're saying as far as them being on the screen classes for hours? So not related to school. The Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics regularly updates screen time, technology time for students and how it's impacting the brain. That's probably one of your most reliable sources. The problem is, is that's a very medical model, and now we're talking about using technology for education, and so we see a lot of benefit there. There's not a lot of great research that's overlapping. It's, it's like they're separate fields. Does that make sense? 
So I think that's where, in some ways, psychology is trying to take over and understand brain development, because that can house both, but we just can't, can't catch up to some of the things that are happening because technology turns over and changes so quickly. So not reliable research. I do think, too, I was going to mention any education, I'm sure your schools are doing this, but any education you can send home to parents. I'm, um, I'm a little bit surprised sometimes by, I, I had a fourth grader this week, so fourth grade. Um, she looked tired, and she said, oh, yeah, I was watching YouTube under my covers until 1 in the morning. And I said, why is your phone in your room? Like, why, why do you have your phone? It's my alarm clock. And I think that um, sometimes parents just aren't thinking through or, or just don't really know what their kids are doing with technology. So, so any information you can send home, even as a classroom teacher um, or speakers coming into school, I think is really valuable because it just, they don't know. Um, I like this Kellen Hobbs. I think it applies to middle schoolers. Uh, so he says, that's it. I'm through learning today. See you all tomorrow. And then he gets the evil stare down from his teacher. And he says, I think I'm a better judge of when I'm through. Um, I just think that applies a lot to the strategies we're using in the classroom and just where middle schoolers are. So this summer I went to a conference. How many of you are familiar with Responsive Classroom? Um, it's kind of like a, a school-wide system to use with your students. It's pretty big in, in Chicago. Uh, there's a few strategies I'm going to highlight and then we should have a couple minutes for, um, for questions. But this talks a lot, they talk a lot about um, incorporating social and emotional needs intentionally into your classroom. So some of these are things that have been around for a long time, like giving middle schoolers the option to choose fits with where they are developmentally, or peer learning opportunities, um, emotional outlets, so having them write something about an ethical issue or a moral dilemma, like they just kind of love those kind of opportunities. But then it also talks about looking for ways to communicate even at a distance. So the idea that when you're grading a test to actually write a comment on there that's meaningful or to do journal response kind of activities, but some way where a teacher is able to be a little bit at a distance like they like, but you're also able to kind of build into them and feed into them. Um, and as a parent too, this goes into like writing the notes, putting a note in their lunch, putting a note next to their bed, just kind of ways to communicate without just always being in their face about stuff. Um, and then also just those real world experiences where they're saying like, why do we have to learn this where you actually can connect it to the real world. Um, a lot of these are things we know. But uh, a little, a second part that we learned at this conference was classroom strategies. And it has a lot to do with modeling with middle schoolers. So the responsive classroom idea is just you tell them what you're going to do, you show them what you're going to do, you talk about what you did, um, you have them practice what you did. Kind of these ideas that are, are in a lot of teaching um, belief systems and, and examples. But there's little specific things they talked about that I thought were really helpful. So when we explain something to a class of students, what do we ask before they start working? Any questions? So just like these little simple strategies to, instead of saying any questions, to say what questions do you have? So like always flipping to open-ended questions. Have you heard this before? Have you guys heard this? So just kind of flipping to these open-ended questions because no middle schooler, when you say, does anyone have any questions, they're very rarely going to put themselves on the spot and admit that they don't know something. But when you just flip things around a little bit to just be like, what questions do you have? It just opens the door for middle schoolers to, to, to talk or to ask questions. And then along those same lines, like, what part of my instructions weren't clear? 
So when you're explaining something complicated, maybe you've modeled a science experiment that they're going to do, and then to just say like what part of my <laughs> explanation wasn't didn't make sense, just allows them to be able to ask a question without seeming vulnerable in front of their peers. Um, there's a lot about redirecting language versus reminding language. So with reminding language is what we do a lot, like what should you be working on? Um, Michelle, what should you be working on? What are you supposed to be doing? And instead it's the direct, like um, redirecting language of like, Michelle, put your book away and get back to your group. So those are two different ways that we talk to middle schoolers and both are, both are important, but just to make sure that you use both with students in the classroom. Um, a couple other, other things on here is also envisioning language. So that's the idea of, you know, saying like, we're all going to become experts today in this science experiment. Today we're all going to be writers. Um, we're all going to be active citizens on this project today. Just kind of using that envisioning language that shows middle schoolers like a belief in them and also what they're going to be learning um, is a way that feeds into kind of all those social emotional parts. Um, trying to be do one more. So that last one is the growth and academic mindset. So the growth and fixed mindset is a, you know, those are buzzwords that have been around education for a while. So this responsive classroom takes it and adds in an academic mindset as well. And so um, that's that whole idea of just teaching kids that like they belong in school. When they put effort in, it improves their performance. Um, they can succeed. You see value in them. It's kind of all these ideas of showing them that they can grow academically and that they, they can develop this mindset. So if you're not familiar with the growth mindset, um, Grit is a good book to read, or um, yeah, anything by Carol Dweck. There's so much out there. Mm -hmm. But then you can also just kind of Google academic mindset. It's kind of a just a twist on that to talk about how to do that in your classroom with specific academics. The only thing I'd add to that is that remember, like there's still concrete thinking. So some of what we're saying to them, they can't attach to or fully believe because it's abstract, right? When we talk about growth, mind, growth mindset, that's a more of an abstract concept and moving towards, they still see things as two doors. Yes, I got it right or I got it wrong, right? So what we're yeah. really doing is trying to help them internalize a new language. So as this starts to develop, they're like, oh, that's what Mrs. Sherman was talking about. It's already there. They hear the voice, they know the language but to know that they will be able to fully understand, not always. So we put some resources in here, recommended readings, things that we use for this, and just things we recommend. So take a look at that. And we have like five minutes for questions, four minutes for questions. Yeah. Questions? Four minutes? We're done? Oh, four minutes. Okay, four <laughs> minutes. I thought I was getting done. Any questions? Any things that you guys have tried that have really been successful or you feel like lends itself well to this talk and you think it would be helpful for your colleagues to know? Or trouble areas that you're stuck on? For counseling? <laughs> we only got four minutes. Four minutes. <laughs> All right, feel free to come up and talk to us if you have questions. Thank you. Thank you.